Welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is by public service leaders for current and future public service leaders. If you would like to hear what the ministers and politicians are thinking, then there are numerous other podcasts where you can tune in to find out what their latest thoughts are. This podcast is about the inspirational people designing and leading frontline public services. This is about the people who do the real work. On the podcast, you'll hear from leaders from councils, from within the NHS and other public services, and also those involved in policy development. I particularly try and find people who have interesting stories to tell and have achieved really difficult things in challenging circumstances and who have learned lessons along the way and who are keen to share those lessons with others. Because as I think as we all know, public service leaders are not prone to shout about their achievements, but it is really important, especially now with so much pressure on public services, that those leaders do share the lessons that they have learned about what works and what indeed does not work. So I hope you enjoy it and don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. And indeed, you might want to catch up on some of the previous episodes. Hello, this week's episode is with Joe Pritchard. Joe is a director at Social Enterprise UK with a focus on health and social care. Before that, Joe was one of the founders of Central Surrey Health, which was one of the very first public service mutuals way back in 2006. It's a very wide-ranging conversation, starting with the journey of setting up Central Surrey Health, why employee ownership felt like a good thing then, and why Joe thinks it's still a really good thing now. We then move on to discussing the current reforms that are happening within health and social care, the Health and Care Act, and what that means for the healthcare system. Is it a good thing? Is the integration going to be genuinely good for service users and for staff? We also cover off social value, and how that's becoming an increasingly important concept in public service procurement. And I very much recommend that you keep listening to the end where we get into really interesting topics like the power of storytelling when you're trying to convince someone of something, and then also what it really means to be a public service entrepreneur. So let's hear from Joe. Joe, you're very welcome on the podcast. It's a real pleasure to get the opportunity to talk to you today. For the listeners, it would be great if you could just say a little bit about who you are. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's good to be on the chat with you. Um, so my background is nursing. Um, I actually did the degree in nursing at Surrey University in the days when it was quite unusual. I was in the second year. Um, and so we weren't particularly liked always by our colleagues in the hospitals. Um, we were seen as a bit of a threat. But I think that actually probably resulted in the kind of nurses we all became because it's interesting all these years later there's been very little attrition for the, uh, the group on that course and the vast majority with whom I'm still in contact have remained in nursing or associated roles and so after completing my degree um, I went on and did clinical work for many years cardiothoracic and then several years in intensive care here and abroad but the ITU hours didn't work particularly well um, when I became a single mum so I moved into community nursing and um, public health nursing as a specialist practitioner in health visiting. And 
then moves into management of teams and eventually secondment to a performance role at the Department of Health. And from there, roles at a health authority in mental health and learning disabilities trust, and then to a primary care trust as director of nursing and primary care. Then um, began to think about um, the future of community services. I see. Yeah, so you've had um, a career that's involved spending time on the front line, but also in central government. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, and I've been very fortunate. Yes. <laughs> how did you find the the differences in how things things work? Because I think one of the challenges that we're wrestling with at the minute is just what at what level decisions should be taken and how much central government should be able to influence what happens locally. And I know these are very complex questions and we will get into some of that when we talk about the current reforms, but just general impression from you on how you found working closer to the front line versus working in central government would would be really interesting. I think I, I had an unusual experience in that I really literally went from one day at delivering care and seeing clients and being um, very involved with nursing teams to the next sitting in, um, it was then Eastbourne Terrace, the Department of Health and Social Care, um, and going out and being involved in performance management of um, acute trust and talking to chief execs about waiting times um, on behalf of the government. And that was just really surreal. Um, And so I had to learn very, very fast. But also it gave me a real opportunity to put in some common sense into conversations and to tell people about the reality um, of what happened. Because I realised that the vast majority of people I was working with, and this is way back, but had no actual experience of delivering healthcare. Yes. So there was a huge gap in understanding, extremely bright, able people who wanted the best for health and social care services, but um, who just didn't have that practical experience. And you know, when you look at it from a distance, a lot of what happens in the NHS, you think could be sorted and shouldn't be that difficult to sort. And it's only when you understand the complexities of the services that you realise that it isn't that easy. Yeah, I think that I think that's a really good point, Joe, and I'm glad that you've expressed it like that, because one of the overarching things that I've learned in my time working with the central government is that often the very best central government civil servants are the ones who have had frontline experience, whether that's in the NHS or in a council or working for a social enterprise where they actually can layer a level of realism on top of the policy drivers which are coming from on high within central government and I just think it's so valuable for people who want to be a really effective public servant at any level whether that's local or central to try and get that breadth of experience. Mm, yeah no, I absolutely agree. So Joe you the reason I know you is that you were one of the pioneers of the public service mutual revolution or mini revolution whatever we want to call it um, when you took your community service in central Surrey out into staff ownership I think it was back in 2006 you were I think the first organization to explore and achieve this so why did you think it was the right thing to do at that time so if we go back a year before that, sort of 2005, we were approaching uh, yet another change in the structures in the NHS system yep. with what were then primary care groups 
becoming larger primary care trusts. So we kind of went down in a sort of cycle of getting smaller and then larger and smaller again. But we were back into getting larger again. And although we didn't nurse the time, community services were about to be separated from the primary care trusts under what was going to be called transforming community services policy. But this was before that all happened. And our then um, chief exec of our primary care group thought it would be a good idea to move all the community services under GP practices, which, if I'm honest, showed his lack of understanding of the complexity of what we did. You know, if you think about, for instance, neurorehabilitation services, incredibly complex services that we were delivering, wouldn't have sat well under a local GP practice with the best one in the world. No. Um, so... That was sort of the plan that was being muted at the board. And I and my colleague, Trisha McGregor, who sadly died back in 2020, the pair of us were motivated to find another solution because we were really clear that morale was very low. The NHS kept on changing, but it never seemed to improve patient care or employee well-being. We never talked about staff satisfaction or happiness. And I was really concerned that every time we had a new intake of you know, newly qualified clinicians with all that kind of spark of enthusiasm. Somehow we managed to kind of get rid of that in a great speed. Um, and there must be a better way of supporting staff. So we began to explore with the board support what other op- options there were. And of course, because I'd had a background with my couple of years sitting at the Department of Health, I went back and asked people for ideas, of which there were none. So we looked wider, and that's when we became aware of um, employee ownership. So we looked at models, um, at organisations such as John Lewis, yeah. and really yeah. liked the evident increase in motivation and pride in the organisation. And that just took me back again, is you know, how many people at that point in the NHS actually felt proud of the organisation they worked for? Most people didn't actually talk about their organisation. They tend to talk about the NHS, but not about the organisation as being the one they were proud of. Yes. We also learned about social enterprise, and if I'm honest, I've never heard about it before. But I really liked the idea that these were organisations that had the drive, the determination, and the discipline of commercial businesses that use any profits to support their social mission. Yeah. So you need to make a profit, otherwise you go out of business. And that's yes, so exactly. unlike. Exactly, and it's not it's not a dirty word. You know, it is. This is about being a sustainable service, regardless of whether you're in the public sector, private sector or third sector. Absolutely. And, you know, whoever, whatever role you have, you and I had had, you know, quite a few in the NHS, you get tired of the sort of scurry at year end to spend some money. Because sometimes there were pots of money that suddenly had been there and, you know, on, on not necessarily the right things. And then wherever you looked, you could see waste. And it wasn't going into the things that really should be happening. Um, And it was also, I found really strange that NHS Trust and Foundation Trust can make a loss and are bailed out. So it's much more daunting to run a social enterprise where you've actually got to get across the end of the year in, in in profit, in surplus. My my finance director used to say to me, it's like landing a jumbo jet on a postage stamp getting through year end, Joe, because it was yeah. difficult. But we had to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't have you know, a sustainable business, as you say. The difference between operating within the NHS, where there isn't the same pressure to, to make ends meet and to balance the budgets, and then to move 
very brave decision to move to an independent enterprise, albeit a social enterprise, but still that need to not spend more than your budget is because you just can't can't do that. Yeah. And we found that when you talk to staff, this is before we became our co-owned organisation, um, and talked about you know, this, this weighty responsibility of living within our means, it's what we all do at home. Yeah. Broadly. <laughs> and we all try to. And, and it kind of helped that everybody kind of understood that. You know, we have so much money coming in and we need to make sure we spend it as wisely and carefully as we possibly can and, and you know, involve people far more in that thinking as well, which was very novel. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's, it's, it's a very good point. And public services are not some uh, do not operate in some magic system where there is a magic money tree, as this you know, sometimes referred to. Um, <laughs> is your, your ambition for this to be a good thing for the staff? Did that play out? It absolutely did. Um, so what we saw was, um, well, in, in the journey to make it real, um, we had to make sure that people were assured about a few things. So we, we did have a few kind of challenges in terms of um, make, making sure that things such as access to the NHS pension scheme continued and that there was a solid contract. People were very concerned about their futures and that was fundamental. So we had to make sure that that was in place before we got the full confidence of the 550 people who transferred into the, the organisation. And, and you can quite understand why, um, but that was quite a challenge to do that. And eventually I got the person from DH's pension scheme to come down and actually say face-to-face to everybody, yes, you are still members of the pension scheme. That was interesting. But once we'd sort of got people comfortable that actually, yes, things really weren't going to change, their terms and conditions weren't going to change, and then they saw um, that they had the power to make more decisions, be involved in decisions and contribute to the strategy. That was we began to see a sort of real sea change in behaviours. And we we did an annual staff survey, which, um, as every, you know, so many people do, and we tried to benchmark it against the um, NHSs as well. So we could we actually could check, you know, see how we were doing compared to other people. So we, we, we were always seeing patient satisfaction levels over 95%. And so that was always you know, really high. And we also involved our co-owners, as we called our the workforce, because they were co-owners of the business, in helping us get rid of some of that waste. Um, and one of the things we did when we were in measuring that, um, 91% um, of our co-owners told us they understood why they were doing that and 83% were fully supportive of it which yeah. I think yeah. in itself both figures give you a bit of an indication about how involved and engaged people were and in fact I've got a little very story fun. I went to um, a meeting this very early on and we were talking about what we needed to do and we learned very early on as well that we had to give people the bad news as well as the good news the one bit of feedback was it's all, always, you know, it's all, all bit too positive. And actually, we need to know some of the things you're grappling with, which was very helpful uh, and useful feedback. But somebody stood up to say something and they kind of did their usual traditional sort of folded arms. Um, so we've got a problem about something. What are you going to do about it? Was the 
where the sentence was going. And then she stopped and she said, what are we going to do about it? Very good. That's an incredibly important mindset change. Yeah. That sounds really positive and sounds like it's been a good experience for the staff making that that transition and also for service users. Um, I, I want to ask you just about how relevant this is now, because following your experience and, and a number of other pioneers taking the same steps, when the coalition government came in in 2010, there was something called the Mutual Support Programme was launched, which I reasonably he- heavily involved in. It, that, that continued for a good number of years, but recently, for various reasons, the whole idea of encouraging this type of delivery of public services has fallen away a bit. Now, do you think that is a is a natural, acceptable state for it to have had its day, or do you think that it's actually a good model for public services right now? So I think it's a great model um, because I think it does capture so many things. I think it's aligned completely with what would be said to be the values of the NHS and people who are providing the services within these social enterprises. That's what they're there for. Um, so they are completely driven by their sort of, you know, the social, wider social mission. But they're involved and that involvement and engagement is key if you really want to transform services if you want to get innovation and I've always been very clear that a happy supported motivated workforce provides better care and there's lots of research now to back that up so do I believe in it still absolutely yes the challenge has been over the last few years though that there has been a change in government focus or changing government full stop. So as you say, back in 2010, um, we had the right to request, which enabled at least 40 larger social enterprises to, to, to be established to deliver primary and community services. Yeah. And we had right to provide, and that widened out beyond community services, and obviously we got social care involved. And today we estimate um, there's about 15,000 social enterprises working across health and social care, all sizes, shapes, different types of services, which means there's over a billion pounds worth of contracts on behalf of the state employing over 100,000 staff. So, yeah, a very sizable sector. Um, over a third of community services, health, uh, community health services are provided by social enterprises and two thirds of out of hours services. But you're absolutely right, Andrew, that it's not a sector that's growing with government support at the moment. The one area I am seeing more growth in is around primary care, and that's because the old model for general practice is really not going to continue into the future. For many, it's just not the way in which new GPs want to be employed. They don't want that responsibility of owning and running their own businesses. Um, And therefore, in that gap, people are looking at various options and social enterprise is seen by quite a few as a really good way forward. So we're seeing growth around primary care and in a few other sectors. But as I say, this is not due to leadership and support from government. This is yes. Um, yeah. yeah, you're absolutely right about about primary care. We're we've been in various conversations with GPs who are either approaching retirement or want to start thinking about it. And essentially, 
the younger GPs in their practice are not in the slightest bit interested in taking on ownership in the, yeah. the traditional partnership model. They want to have more of a portfolio career. They want to do different things and they don't want all of that responsibility, which actually is making it quite hard for some of the the GPs who do own the practices to actually get out. Um, yeah. So, yeah, there is a, a real challenge there. But as you say, growth in that sector, it's driven by necessity and the changing needs of people rather than anything central government is actually driving. Now, I know that there are some people in central government, like Danny Kruger, who is uh, in, involved in the Department for Leveling Up at the minute, who is very supportive of mutuals and social enterprises. And it would be great to get some of that drive back. If we think back to the days of, you know, I don't know, Francis Maud, who was very enthusiastic about it and was a real advocate for it. But like you, I'm a huge fan. And as you say, particularly in health and social care, the sector plays a huge role. And um, I will come on later to talk about the impact that the current reforms might have on the sector, unintended perhaps, but we can come on to that in a bit. But in my experience, social enterprises and mutuals, certainly talking to some of the people we both know within the sector, they've been very well placed to respond to the challenges of the last two years during the pandemic. Would would you agree with that? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think because they're fairly fleet of foot, they're able to pivot very rapidly. So one of the organisations, we both know Navigo, a mental health care provider, managed to get PPE equipment at great speed and act for distribution because we went through a period which I will never forget um well it's now two Easter's ago um when our social enterprises have been left off the distribution um list and so everybody was you know desperately trying to source PPE and so Navigo really got on with it and, and um, eventually acted as a hub for the, the whole area. Joe, I was just going to say Jane has been on podcast, Jane Lewington, talking about that. So, yeah, it's a really good example of, as you say, that agility that you, they can just get on and do it. Yes, and I think the other thing that I think what social enterprises do and, and, and sort of the, it sort of attracts people who are somewhat more innovative in their thinking at times and that they tend to look at problems and actually think laterally. So we've we've had organisations that have used their facilities differently. Lots have run the vaccination centres because, again, it's that, yes, we'll step up to the plate, we'll get on with it, it needs to happen, and we'll just think about how we manage the um, day-to-day services differently as a short term. One um, organisation worked with a local hotel to employ their unused catering team to cook for the social enterprise and then also use the hotel rooms to put up their staff so they could be closer and, and in our um, research at Social Enterprise UK, 62% of the folk who responded to one of the surveys developed new services, new approaches during this time, which, again, is pretty impressive when many were just struggling to continue. Yeah. You mentioned Social Enterprise UK there. I know that for, for the past number of years you've been working with the team there, lobbying government finding out what the challenges that the sector is facing, etc. And something that Social Enterprise UK has very successfully lobbied for over the years is the Social Value Act. And we now have 
uh, a well-established legislation that requires public procurement to include a measure of additional social value when procuring services. Um, but in my experience, the system is still quite easy to, to game and quite a lot of private profit-making companies, they often somehow manage to score very well in procurement, but then they don't really deliver and they don't seem to be held to account either. So whilst that legislation on the face of it is a good thing, um, I'd be really interested in your view just on how well it's being implemented. Yes, I mean, as you say, you know, Majesty's government has committed to expanding the use of it. <laughs> and I think it's been interesting that from our perspective, I mean, it is, it is good that that's happening. Um, and it is critical to delivering, you know, the levelling up agenda, achieving net zero. However, the NHS, interesting enough, is not really using it greatly. And the bill, which I'm sure we're going to talk about in a moment, doesn't include any reference at all to social value. So the words are not mentioned at all. So it does mean that the new procurement system for the NHS may go against the grain of the rest of the public sector. And it also means that any procurement going forwards might be more, well, will be based on financial rather than wider social and environmental impact. Um, so that's just an aside. But to your point, yes, we are also seeing increased examples of gaming, social washing. And because of the size of them and, and the resources they have, they are obviously able to throw quite a lot of money at getting the right answers in some of these competitive processes, which the social enterprises cannot do. And it, I've had more than one organisation feedback to say it is absolutely galling that are out and out for profit distributing to shareholder organisation is actually trumping them on the social value question. So I think it's up to us. Um, as a sector, Andrew, to actually improve yeah, our ability yeah. to describe what we do? I think it is. I think it is. And I also think that there is a role for those who do have the ear of government and can influence in some way just to, to really point out, uh, and I include myself in this, to, to, to point out what the weaknesses are, because there's also, with the social enterprises that we all know, they want to be very honest and very realistic, and that's the right thing to do. And I just don't think that same level of principle is applied sometimes when some of the other companies who are competing are filling out these sections. And there needs to be, because they are quite complicated now and complex and take a lot of effort and a lot of time. And the only way to actually make it worth anything is to have an equally complex and complicated way of monitoring whether everything that is promised is being achieved and that just isn't there at the minute. So it just, it simply does not work as a system when you have smaller organisations who are clearly delivering huge social value and being honest about what they know they can deliver are up against organisations who, as you say, can invest a huge amount in the procurement process and then that investment does not transfer through to actual delivery. So it's a problem and one that I think needs to be addressed in some way, shape or form. Yeah, I, I, I completely would agree. And I think it's just going to get worse, isn't it? You mentioned the health and care bill, which it obviously, as you've already said, it is not going to specifically address that. But, um, you know, if we, if we take a step back on the face of it, 
it looks like it has some admirable aims of joining up services and making local planning easier. But I know that's not the full picture. So what what's your view on the legislation with regards to its strengths and weaknesses? Initially, um, we were very supportive of it because, well, who cannot support integration? You know, as somebody who's trying to navigate to get quality care for her parents, it is constantly frustrating to see the gaps. And, um, you know, despite that, I'm a seasoned person um, in terms of health and social care. Um, I find it incredibly difficult. So heaven help anybody else. So, yes, integration cannot be um, disputed. And, you know, that's actually what social enterprises do anyway. They are integrators of care. Um, they are great at working in partnership with other organisations. So we have supported the bill from the, the first set of ideas through um, and have worked very closely with folk drafting the bill um, and some of the policy teams, both at NHS England and Department of Health and Social Care. However, um, we are concerned because the proposals don't focus enough on reducing health inequalities. Yeah, they yeah. don't maximise the opportunities around social value of local services. And therefore, there's a real risk that we're going to push the more innovative models of delivery to the margins, which is going to lead to worse health outcomes for local people and patients. And, you know, clearly for me, this is a real opportunity to make a seismic change to how we provide healthcare in this country I and mean, we can't be proud of the fact we are slowly dropping down the world's league tables in terms of our outcomes for the majority of conditions alongside the fact we're seeing increasing gaps in equitative services like we've got one um, member who says that on their bus route in London there is actually an eight-year gap in life, ex- healthy life expectancy for men, yes. and that's just atrocious, isn't it? I just, I, yeah, I went, it is. I went, it I went is. presented in Lithuania a couple of years ago. Um, don't ask me why. Totally bizarre, but anyway. Um, and I just sat sort of mortified as they just showed the stats, and I wouldn't have thought that Lithuania was necessarily the healthiest country in Europe, which shows how much I knew at that point. But just looking at the European stats, the Results in this country compared to the rest of Europe were not um, ones that made you at all proud. So I think there's an opportunity here to do something. And I can't see that we're going to see that realised because I think people have got lots of self-interest and people are focused on some of the wrong things. Yeah. Do you think that depends on the, the area of the country? Because on the podcast, I've had some really encouraging conversations with people like Rob Webster up in West Yorkshire and then also Mel Pickup, who's the chief executive of the Bradford Teaching Hospitals Trust. And they they seem very focused on health inequalities and very focused as well, you know, particularly Mel. I really enjoyed the conversation with her. And I think this is coming from the change in the acute trust contract where it's not inverted commas payment by results anymore it's a block contract so there is more of a financial incentive to work with other providers i I came away from those conversations with rob and with mel that at least in in that area that it did feel like the focus was on the right stuff and i don't know whether that's something which is reflected widely and uh, i'm i'm not sure it'd be be good to get your thought on that so i think i think they're, they're, they're brilliant um, we, as you know, in Rob's 
ICS system. Um, there are several social enterprises and he is working brilliantly with everybody. So it's very inclusive. And from the conversations I've had with him and with others, it is absolutely focused on the right things. So I think you're right. I think there are sort of areas in the country that um, give you real hope. But I'm not convinced that this is underwritten by policy. So when individuals go, yes, I'm always worried about, so what happens? And has enough change? Is the culture sufficiently strong in those areas that it will continue nonetheless or not? But it doesn't feel like it's a it's a national approach. No, it's a really good it's a really good point, Joe, because certainly personality will drive some of this. But as you say, people people change. Um, you know, people in different jobs change, and if it's not in legislation, if it's not embedded, then the approach can change as well. So, do you, do you think the, the the result of that is that we will see, or already have seen, perhaps a threat to some of the really successful social enterprises and mutuals? Well, if you look at the bill, one of the challenges around the bill is that at the moment, I mean, it's going through. So we're having the, as we're having this conversation, it's going through the House of Lords. And by the way, we've had some amazing support from some of the peers. So, so quite a few of them have now talked about the added value of social enterprises and why they need to be better recognised and that the guidance that follows the bill needs to make sure that that reflects that as well. But at the moment, one of the challenges is that even if you are a material provider, so, you know, you have a, a large contract and you are the significant community, they're usually a community, but also mental health provider in your local system. At the moment, you don't have a seat at the key decision making table, which is the integrated care system board. Right. And that is reserved for NHS bodies only and, and a GP, which is another issue because obviously they're also independent. Um, so if they're not there at that key decision making table and yet they are a material provider, then they will be excluded from some decisions. And where there are some poor behaviours, then you could see that some organisations will just get larger and you will get less diversity of provision in the local system. And I, I wouldn't argue for organisations who aren't adding value, but where you have got organisations that have got a special set of skills and an ability to provide services better than others, then I would wish that they are retained in the future mix of providers. And yeah, at yeah. the moment, there is a real risk, and we have already seen that in parts of the country. So this isn't just sort of a slight sort of potential anxiety this is reality um so there are parts of the country where certain organizations are getting much larger and you'll see this particularly in london where acute trusts are um taking on becoming you know, taking on others and and so you're getting um but also are taking on community services and other services so that there are fewer around the table yeah it's interesting um that point about at what level the voice of the sector needs to be heard. As I, I was reading last week in the MJ, the Municipal Journal, um, I can't remember exactly who said it, but it was a prominent NHS leader in a discussion about the role of councils within ICSs. And it was being lamented that 
the councils didn't have a significant role. And this person, they were suggesting that the proper place for that voice, and uh, and I took from it any other providers as well, like social enterprises and mutuals, is at the integrated care partnership level, which is the groupings that sit below the ICS and actually work together to actually deliver the services. Now, I can see challenges with that because decisions will be taken at an ICS level, but it'd be good just to get your thought on whether there's any sense in that or whether really the main providers like social enterprises and mutuals who are playing a significant role in an ICS area really need to be on that ICS board rather than just at the integrated care partnership level. So as I understand it, Andrew, there's going to, the plans are to have a, an ICS board with largely NHS organisations, although I think people, by the way, such as Rob, will be including his significant community provider, which is a social enterprise. So a few will go off piece and they'll, they'll work out how to make that, that happen. Alongside it is this partnership group, which will potentially be a group of you know, thousands because um, at the moment it seems to be um, envisaged that a lot of people could be around that table. And I've been slightly scarred over the years by being a member of health and wellbeing boards, which were well-intentioned, but the reality is didn't achieve a great deal because there were a lot of people and they weren't really held properly to account for a great deal. Yeah. So a lot of a lot of time spent on a lot of well-meaning conversation, but not a lot of delivery. I think underneath will be subcommittee structures at locality place level which is where the view is a lot of things might happen. Um, although I've been alerted by one of our members only on Thursday about a technical problem about getting parity of decision making around that table as well because of a historic problem with, so with Section 75. I'm getting into some technical stuff here. But I think the idea, and I know the, the people I've spoken to at um, DH in the draft bill team and also um, Ian Dodd and others at NHS England, the view was the exciting stuff is going to happen at that subcommittee level around locality and place. But again, at the moment, as it's written, there is no requirement for the NHS to really include partners in those structures. Yeah. So yeah. I'm really looking to guidance that actually makes that lot tighter and should also include the local councils. Absolutely. Because otherwise, how are you going to make change? And going back to the very first thing we talked about, if this is about integration, you can't really have integration and collaborative delivery if you immediately exclude a you know, significant number of the key organisations in that local system. Uh, agreed entirely. And I think we all need to watch the passage of this bill very carefully and, and also any guidance which comes out around it. Um, this leads quite nicely on to my next question, which is about the part of your role within SEUK, which is really about lobbying government, essentially, which is what, what we're talking about here. So how, how does that work and who do you talk to and, and how do you manage to gather and distill the views of those who you represent? So in terms of how do I kind of influence and lobby um basically i talk to anybody i can andrew <laughs> um so i've had over the years numerous cups of coffee and just 
to find out about what people do because I'm always interested um, in, in people's roles and, and in people in general. Um, and particularly, though, my focus has been around, obviously, NHSEI, um, Department of Health and Social Care, DCMS, although at the moment, let's be honest, um, there's, I'm not having many conversations there because they've, in essence, stopped all their support for the world of public sector mutual social enterprises and the new levelling up team and very much looking at you know where who are the influencers and what are the key issues that we can actually um where, where, where we might have an impact um and i sit on various sort of advisory boards i've sort of just because i'm now kind of known a bit for my work around social enterprises so i've been involved in the people's plan um you know, national community nursing um board things such as that just to make sure that this workforce is not forgotten because you know it's a significant workforce and yet um what i find is every time there's a new sort of entry group into all these different roles who've got none of the history they automatically just think in terms of people who are employed through an nhs or um, public sector body and just forget, be it around education, pay rises, you name it. So very much focused on how we can ensure that people are aware. And one of the things we have done is actually developed a film, which is now used as part of the induction for anybody um, joining Department of Health and Social Care, which just talks around this sector, which um, has been one of the more useful things I've done last year. And in terms of how you asked about how I feed that back, so um, SUK has got over 80 organisations, members who are working, oh, I'll to rephrase that, there are over 80 organisations of a significant size who are members of SUK working in health and social care. And yes. there is a network that I kind of curate. And so we communicate with the network every week, meet um, at least once a quarter for a sort of formal a meeting, but at least once a month on issues of particular interest. For instance, last couple of weeks ago, we had um, a session on EDI, just looking at shared learning about how to um, improve what organisations do and learn from each other. Next week, the chief nursing officer is coming to talk to all the lead nurses, and she comes every quarter to update and hear the issues from this sector. There's a WhatsApp group and all the usual things so that people are able to share what are the key issues for them. And then we can work out what are the priorities for action. Can't do everything and, and obviously can't sort out local specific issues, but can look at the issues that sort of common across most and then see where best to get the best impact. Really. And do you have any relationship or interaction with other organisations who will be lobbying government like NHS Confed or NHS providers or anybody like that? Yes, um, so I spend um, quite a bit of time just talking to, to colleagues in those different groups. So NHS Confed, yes, we've got a close link. Um, our chair, in fact, Victor Adeboali is also chair of the NHS Confed, so that gives us an immediate link um, across to Matthew who heads up the Confed and in fact we've got a joint meeting in a couple of weeks. Um, and then almost underneath the Confed sort of umbrella, there, there are links with the independent provider network. Um, and then, of course, because 
We haven't really talked about this, but I think there is some confusion, Andrew, about the language. So social enterprises are organisations that um, use any profit for their social mission and are often confused around employee-owned organisations yes. that can use their profit for shareholders. And then they come together in a term that the Cabinet Office first coined, really, back in sort of 2000, and, well, it's pre-2010, but, um, which is public sector mutuals. And public sector mutuals are employee-owned social enterprises. Yes. And I think the terminology continues to confuse at times. With my Social Enterprise UK hat on, I tend to talk more about social enterprises, but some of our members are also employee-owned, but not yes. all. So it's a, it's a complicated world, isn't it? No, it, 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 it really is, Joe. It really is. I can remember back when we were supporting a lot of organisations to explore what their right model could be. I always used a graph with an axis that was to do with social impact and an axis that was to do with ownership. And the better you scored on the social impact axis was to do with being a social enterprise. The better you scored on the ownership axis was to do with ownership and particularly staff stroke community ownership. And if you managed to score well on both, that put you in the space of the public service mutual, which you were describing there. The terminology, I mean, we all spent a long time trying to get people comfortable with it. And I think that knowledge has probably drifted off now through lack of attention from central government. But it's really interesting to hear how you use that network and you spend a lot of time influencing people because I, I've had the chance to ask a number of interviewees on this about how they lobby. And it's just very interesting, I think, for people to understand how government ends up producing what it produces. And I'm not saying that's the fault of the people lobbying all the time, but they do collect views and those views aren't always listened to. And I think that's a really important point to make. But it is interesting just to understand how policy is made and how legislation passes and the whole range of influences which are involved in that. So thank you very much for that. So, Joe, just as a final question. Um, of course, please. Can I add something very quickly? And, and yeah, of course. It's just a little bit of miser insight into this lobbying bit, which is just might be helpful. Yes. Um, in lobbying around the bill, which I've done a fair bit around, there have been two things that have been really interesting for me and for my learning. One is that the peers in the House of Lords really like stories. They really like that almost granular detail to explain a point. And so any advice for anybody listening to this is don't underestimate the impact of the story um, because it is absolutely powerful. And of course, everybody we speak to at the end of the day may be a patient or will have a relative who is using services. So we're all very close to health um, and and ill health. And therefore, these, you know, these we're trying to influence actually are very receptive to the stories. The other point I also is, and this has been my overall learning over the many, many years being involved in trying to influence policy, is nobody just saying the same thing and then saying it louder and louder and louder and hoping eventually somebody hears. It's about really trying to get into their shoes and understand what it is they're trying to do and therefore how can you make their life easier whilst also improving the lot for the people whom you're lobbying. Um, so it, 
it is therefore prioritizing not going for everything, but actually working out what it is that is going to have the maximum impact, but also couching it in a way that's actually going to be helpful. Um, really and, yeah. Yeah, really interesting and fantastic advice for anybody out there who is trying to influence any decision maker, really, not not just policy makers. Yeah. Um, you've got to put yourself in their shoes. So, Joe, as a final question, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or charity, social enterprise or mutual, who wants to make an impact in the way that you have managed to both in Central Surrey Health, but more recently in SC UK? I think, first of all, you've really got to believe in what you're doing. I mean, going back all the way back to you know, starting out that first um, employer in social enterprise, you have to believe and have to make sure that your values, your behaviours, your actions congruent with what you're saying they are because people just sniff it out really quickly and we saw some social enterprises were set up basically because they were told to do that particularly in the southwest of, of the country and they failed because the people who were charged with leading this move out of the NHS into a social enterprise didn't really believe it and didn't really seek get the vision of what it could look like so I think first of all be really honest with yourself about what it is you're trying yes, to do yes. and, and 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 then others will see that and and then then people get excited and and follow and then i guess my other thinking is around you need to be entrepreneurial and you need to have sufficient energy and personal resilience because i think this is you know none of this is for the faint-hearted it is it is quite tiring at times but so so rewarding yeah. Joe, could you just briefly unpack what you mean by entrepreneurial? Because I, I know what I think that means and I'm a huge fan of it. But for some people, maybe even within the public sector, that might feel like a rather commercial concept. Yes, no, I see it um, not at all in commercial context, if that helps. But it's about looking at what the situation is and then thinking laterally and using people, the contacts, the organisations as in a different way to sort problems. Yeah. So um, uh, you've probably met Shamal um, who runs Change Please. Yeah. And he's, he's addressing an issue around health care for the homeless in a completely novel way by taking London buses, not London buses, buses in London, um, but with... Um, healthcare provision and washing machines and everything else to people who are homeless. Now, I'm not saying that's a big thing to do and it doesn't have to be of that size, but it's about looking at problems and just using the resources of people around you to come up with new and innovative ways of doing things. I think that's really helpful and a very good explanation of how you can be entrepreneurial, but also very socially minded as well and that that's an incredibly important concept i think joe thank you so much for your time i've really enjoyed talking to you thank you very much Angie. well that was so interesting there's a few bits in particular that i'd like to discuss one is the way joe was talking about social enterprise providers being able to act with real agility during the pandemic and i thought the example of a provider working with a local hotel in terms of using their staff and also using the hotel rooms. That's just not something that the public sector 
on its own could do really easily. I think another thing that jumped out at me was the discussion on social value. A lot of effort went into getting the Social Value Act passed, but procurement needs to use it really sensibly. There's no point asking for lots of information which require a huge amount of resources to provide if you're not going to then follow up and make sure that people are making good on the promises which they've made during a procurement process. I enjoyed the discussion on what it is to be an entrepreneur in the public sector or in the social sector and that being all about generating new ideas, thinking about things differently. It's not about financial return, it's about social return. It's about thinking creatively about how you can make the biggest impact possible. And you can do that within the public sector and you can certainly do it from within a social enterprise, a charity or a public service mutual that is delivering public services. And finally, I think it's really important just to highlight the comments Joe made right at the end about the power of storytelling. I thought that was incredibly powerful. And it is true. If you want to convince somebody of something, you can show them all the facts and figures and numbers. But the way to someone's heart is really through telling a story. And the other point Joe made about putting yourself in someone's shoes, what problem are they trying to solve? Can you be someone who can help them achieve what they're trying to achieve? rather than just being another person trying to get what you want. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you so much for your time. And don't forget to register on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter so you never miss a future episode.